My name is Mandy Jackson Beverly, and I'm a bibliophile. Welcome to the Bookshop Podcast. Each week, I present interviews with independent bookshop owners from around the globe, authors, and specialists in subjects dear to my heart the environment and social justice. To help the show reach more people, please share it with friends and family and on social media. And remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. You're listening to episode 214. Christina Gerhardt is Associate Professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, Senior Fellow at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Baron Professor of Environment and the Humanities at Princeton University. Her environmental journalism has been published by Grist.org, The Nation, The Progressive, and The Washington Monthly. Christina's new book, Sea Change, An Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean, weaves together essays, maps, art, and poetry to show us and make us see island nations in a warming world. Here's a synopsis of the book. Low-lying islands are least responsible for global warming, but they are suffering the brunt of it. This transportive atlas reorients our vantage point to place islands at the center of the story, highlighting indigenous and black voices and the work of communities taking action for local and global climate justice. At once serious and playful, well-researched and lavishly designed, Sea Change is a stunning exploration of the climate and our world's coastlines. Full of immersive storytelling, scientific expertise, and rallying cries from island populations, the shout with hope, we are not drowning, we are fighting. This atlas will galvanize readers in the fight against climate change and the choices we all face. Hi, Christina. Congratulations on writing a brilliant book and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for opening with this background, and thanks for the opportunity for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Let's begin with learning about you, your profession in education and research, and what inspired your interest in the environmental humanities. So yeah, my book Sea Change really exemplifies my background as an environmental journalist and in the environmental humanities. So it's really those two fields. I've been working as an environmental journalist for over two decades, and in that capacity, I've been covering the annual UN climate negotiations since 2009 in Copenhagen. I also cover energy policy and the energy transition, and when I do this, I focus on environmental justice. And this is writing that I've published in forums like The Guardian, Gris, The Nation, and Sierra. So that's one one background that informs sea change. The other is my work in the environmental humanities. So as an academic, I'm founding director of the environmental humanities at the University of Hawaii. I'm also former Baron Professor of the Environmental Humanities at Princeton University and a permanent senior fellow at the University of California at Berkeley. A lot of people have questions about what on earth the environmental humanities even is. And I understand that you're in Southern California. I know UCLA has a very vibrant program in the environmental humanities. Uh, UC Santa Barbara does as well, just up the coast. So it's a field that basically consists of disciplines in the humanities. Your listeners can think of history or philosophy or literature or art or poetry and how they engage with the climate crisis. So how do they talk about the environment? So I took these two things, which both really have environmental communications at heart, 
I took these two and thought about which strategies work best to reach audiences, and they inform and led to sea change. Well, personally, I love the addition of the poetry. Uh, I believe poetry and fiction has the power to help people become more empathetic toward others, and in this case, the inhabitants of the islands. So what led you to add poetry to the book? Was this something you envisioned when you started creating the book? And how did you go about finding the poets? Right. So thanks, yeah, for for flagging the the inclusion of the poetry there. I'll just say for your listeners who are in California and interested in the issue of sea level rise to look out for LA Times journalist Rosanna Shia's California Against the Sea. It's a book that will be coming out next month and it's about sea level rise and how it's impacting the California coastline. She's a terrific writer. She's a Pulitzer finalist. But to come back to your question, Mandy, in terms of the poetry, I really call sea change a symphony. So it's, I, you know, it's polyphonic. I mean by that, that it brings together different voices, but also from around the globe, but also different disciplines, right? And I, I do this for a number of reasons. I think we have enough scientific studies with regard to sea level rise. Don't get me wrong. These studies are really important. We need more work by the scientists in these reports. I just don't think a lot of us are going to sit down on our couch on the weekend and relax by reading a scientific report. I might, but like, you know, that's not everybody's idea of fun. And so I decided the best approach to address this topic would be to smuggle it into a coffee table book. I mean, I'm just, I'll be candid there, weaving together art, essays, poems, and science. So it's kind of like, it's the spoonful of sugar approach to address a really grim topic, which, you know, is in some cases in, in Sea Change, the island's very future existence. So the poems by the islanders, and also, you know, I conducted hundreds and hundreds of interviews with islanders, um, ministers of environment, scientists, uh, local fishermen and farmer folk just to read their voices into my essays. But I wanted to center Islander voices, so predominantly Pacific Islanders, because it's the biggest ocean, for the section that's on the Pacific, and then predominantly, but not exclusively, Black Islanders for the Caribbean. And one of the other ways I wanted to bring in their voices is through these poems. And I conducted archival research for the Pacific poems at the University of Hawaii's Hamilton Library, it has a collection focused on the Pacific, and I was so lucky to have done the bulk of my work in spring of 2020. When I went home, I'm you know talking to you from San Francisco, which is home. I went home to San Francisco for spring break, and I didn't go back to Hawaii for two years. And so, you know, the bulk of the research, luckily, I had completed. I just I read a lot of poetry, and I was looking for these poems to center these islanders' voices, as I mentioned, but also to give an, an image of the islands from islanders' vantage point, by which I mean, you know, talking about breadfruit and jackfruit rather than coconuts and pineapples, right? Just to give us a bit more of a sense of an island that isn't a tourism view. I agree with what you said about the book being a symphony. I was immediately drawn to the poetry. And after reading the poetry, I looked at the maps, and then I went back through the book again and kind of put all the layers together. And as you said, it is a coffee table book. And I have to say, the University of California Press have done a superb job with the printing and the presentation of the book. It's absolutely stunning. I love it. 
Christina, would you read the last seven stanzas of Tell Them by Kathy Jetnell Kijina, just to give our listeners a taste of the beauty within this book and what a cry for help from islanders losing their homes sounds like? Yeah, um, Kathy Jetnell Kijner is absolutely phenomenal. She's a climate envoy for the Marshall Islands. She's not the only one, um, but she is, Tina Stege is as well. She's a climate envoy for the the Marshall Islands. She's also a poet. And so I'm happy to read the poem. If you would like to hear it in her words, I just um, shared with you the link to her reading it. Well, why don't you read a little bit of the poem now? And I actually would love to get Kathy on the show to talk about her poetry and her book. Meanwhile, I'd love to hear you read the last seven stanzas of Tell Them by Kathy Jatnil Kishna. Tell them we are afraid. Tell them we don't know of the politics or the science. But tell them we see what is in our own backyard. Tell them that some of us are old fishermen who believe that God made us a promise. Tell them that some of us are a bit more skeptical. But most importantly, you tell them that we don't want to leave. We've never wanted to leave and that we are nothing without our islands. Beautiful. Thank you. Says it all in a nutshell. Beautiful and tragic. Yeah. Unfortunately, when a majority of the people think about the climate crisis, they think about where they are on the planet and how it's going to affect them. They don't think about the people on islands or the people living on the coastal areas, but specifically the islanders. That has been their home for centuries. That is their livelihood, their roots, their family, and their connection to the land is being washed away. I don't understand why it's not headline news every day. Anyway, getting back to your book. In the introduction of Sea Change, you state, quote, almost half of the U.S.'s population, about 40%, lives in coastal states and cities. In other words, or numbers, it is estimated about 13 million U.S. residents would be affected, in particular, in order of impact, in the states of Florida, Louisiana, California, New York, and New Jersey, end quote. We've known this is inevitable for decades. Why does it feel as if it's not being taken seriously by states and federal leaders? Yeah, that's a um, great question. Thank you for it. I think one of the issues with regard to sea level on continents, my book is about islands, but in either location really is how to address it, right? So one can try hard engineering, that refers to building seawalls, things like that, or one can try soft engineering. And that's um, examples there would be restoring wetlands, coral and oyster reefs, or mangrove forests. This is also referred to as nature based solutions. And then one can also consider managed retreat, which means moving an entire population inland. And I, I conducted, when I was at Princeton just last spring, I conducted uh, the high water line. So if your listeners do a quick Google search for high water line in Princeton, they should come up to some site that documents this walk. What we did, and I've done this uh, high water line walk in Honolulu. I've also done it in Princeton. And what we basically do is we walk and chalk. It's based on an idea by the artist. We're back to environmental humanities and eco art. Um, the artist Eve Mosier, she was doing high waterline walks and she was walking and chalking 
the predicted future coastline. She's in Miami and New York. She now lives in the UK. She was uh, documenting the future coastline predicted by sea level, uh, the future sea, you know, coastline predicted by scientists in terms of sea level rise. And I thought, no, that's really interesting. But like in my book, what I wanted to add is the deep, rich cultural history of the location, right? In my book, it's it's of islands and islanders. And so when we did the high water line walk, we walked an area in the small town of Sayersville, New Jersey. And it was really hard hit by Hurricane Sandy in 2012. And there's a program in the state of New Jersey, which, as you just mentioned, is one of the areas that's going to be hardest hit in the U.S. So in New Jersey, they have this program called the Blue Acres Program. And homeowners that lived in this area that were hard hit by Hurricane Sandy, meaning there was water that came six to eight feet in height in their homes. So they were offered buyouts for their homes. And I happened upon this area. I was basically following sea level rise maps. If your listeners are interested in, you know, looking at some of this from the mapping, the cartographic perspective, which is part of sea, sea change, they can go to Climate Central which is a nonprofit that's located across the street from Princeton University. And we use this website for most of the U.S. and U.S.-affiliated territories and sea change. They have a thing called Sea Level Rise Viewer on their website. And you can peck in your address, your home address, your work address. For a lot of us, that might be the same nowadays. There's a little ruler and it says one feet, two feet, three feet. And you can slide that ruler up and down and see the areas in, if you're living in a coastal region, that are going to be most impacted. The science we used is based on the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC for short, their scientific report. They put out a report about every five years. It's hundreds of scientists from around the world. It's a whole bunch of topics beyond sea level rise, drought, whatever. Um, and we use their science for sea level rise. They predict one foot by by mid-century by 2050 and up to three feet by 2100. They're really conservative scientists that I've been in conversation with here in the Bay Area at UC Berkeley who contributed to the report almost laughed when I was on a panel with them and I cited this, this report, even though they contributed to it because the U.S.'s National Climate Assessment Report, which is also put out every so often, is less conservative because it doesn't require consensus, and it predicts six to eight feet. But back to New Jersey. So the Blue Acres program offered homeowners buyouts for their homes, and the low-lying area along the coastline has now been turned back over to nature, and it serves as a buffer against sea level rise. Most of the homeowners here stayed in Sayersville. And to come back to your question, that's really important because cities are often concerned about losing income and revenue streams from property taxes. And that is one very good reason why more action has not been taken. In the U.S., when one uses the term managed retreat or you know, in this era comes in with a decision that is top down, meaning by government, whether that's local, state, or federal, that doesn't, that really rubs a lot of people the wrong way. You know, people have saved their entire lives for a home. They want to be by the ocean. And then that home is at risk and they really want to stay there as long as possible. I don't know what the answer is, but all I know is that after I heard the news last week or read the news about the Atlantic Ocean and the currents changing and the devastation that's going to bring fairly quickly. 
I waited and waited and waited for more politicians to start talking about this. There was nothing. There was nothing. And I'm thinking, okay, so wouldn't it be a no-brainer for the leaders of different countries to say, okay, everybody who can work from home, mandatory, because we saw what a difference that made to nature during the pandemic. I'm not saying everybody, but those who can, yes, work from home. It's small, but it's something. And it would make, I think, the general public feel a little better that something was being done. And I get really frustrated by this. We have scientists saying this is happening now, and it's happening faster in places than we thought it would. It is incredibly frustrating that we have leaders who aren't addressing this, aren't addressing it to us, the public. What are your thoughts? I mean, you've been right down in it and seeing what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I look I track, you know, with keen interest, again, the environmental communications, I track how this is being covered. And then I track, you know, how it's being received in terms of, you know, the public, any other polls in terms of, you know, the top concerns that people have. We've also done surveys at UH of students, you know, what are their top concerns? Climate change always ranks high. Where are they learning about this? Um, universities often rank low. And where do they wish to be learning about this? You know, they learn about this more through other media. And so in terms of, you know, the the politicians and taking action, right now, one of the issues that I've really been tracking is the record air temperatures, right, across the U.S. and around the world. I mean, this is this is having numerous impacts. You know, just this morning there was a new report, and this has been in the news this week, about the record melt in the Arctic, right? So the melt in in the Arctic, in 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 the Arctic and the Antarctic, those are really the the melt of the land ice in particular at the poles. That's one of the main reasons for sea level rise. And so for this reason, I open my book with Greenland. I close with the Thwaites Glacier on Pine Island in the Antarctic. But the other reason, and this comes back to the heat, the other reason for sea level rise is thermal expansion. So when water takes up more, uh, warms up, it takes up more space. So you can think about throwing an ice cube in a glass, right? It'll raise the level of water in that glass. But so when we hear about, and this is something I've been tracking, when we hear about record air temperatures this summer, and I would refer your listeners to Jeff Goodell's recently published Heat if they want to read more about this topic. New York Times bestseller, he's a uh, an environmental journalist for the Rolling Stone, and he has a. I'm familiar with his work, and with him, his previous book is about sea level rise. So, when we hear about increased air temperatures, we should think about increased water temperatures because I just mentioned thermal expansion. The ocean temperatures off the coast of Florida have reached 100 degrees Fahrenheit this summer. That is the temperature of a hot tub. And when we hear about that, we should think about the marine life the coral reefs not being able to withstand these temperatures, right? So that marine life is really one of the, you know, the the coral reefs in particular is one of the crucial buffers of the coastline against the impacts of just wave action erosion that occurs naturally, but also of sea level rise that is produced by increased emissions in the air. So then we should also remember that the oceans have absorbed most of the heat produced on land and most of our carbon emissions. It's a carbon sink. 
this has benefited us. It's it's really harmed the ocean, right? This increase in temperature is one of the reasons for ocean acidification. And that acidification is another reason for coral reefs dying off. And the ocean is basically stuffed. It cannot absorb any more heat. It cannot absorb any more emissions. So it's been doing this work and protecting us for a long time. And I'm really concerned that it's not going to take up any more and what that will mean for us with regard to the climate crisis on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm really concerned about the oceans as a vibrant marine community and habitat and what impact that's going to have on marine life. And I'll make sure to put the links to the authors and the books you've recommended in the show notes for anyone who would like to uh, pick them up and remember to do so at your local indie bookshop. Now, the drawings in Sea Change demonstrate the disappearing coastlines of islands and why and how that happens. And as you mentioned a little earlier, these are the communities living below and above the ocean. For example, on page 51, you described how oyster reefs reduce flooding and prevent erosion. Would you explain this concept concerning Deal Island and likewise with the mangroves? Yeah, thanks for bringing attention to the drawings that are in the book, the scientific illustrations. So they're by, and I should mention too, you mentioned the design of Sea Change. Leah Chandra is the in-house UC Press designer and she's fantastic. I handed her a Word document. I definitely had an idea for the book and its look, um, the yellow of the cover and then the blue that is inside. Those are classic colors for atlases. So those are the reasons for them. The the illustrations, the scientific illustrations are by scientific illustrator Zina Duretsky. Uh, she's based here in the Bay Area too, is also an open water swimmer as am I. And that's one of the ways we connected. I realized though, at some point, I guess there's a thread here, we're back to the issue again of environmental communications. That is what works best to communicate the science. I realized at some point that visualizing the science would be more effective than describing it in prose. So this could complement my essays. It could add a new dimension. We can also, you know, people learn differently. Some people learn better through visualization, some better through writing. Um, but what I was keen to describe in the illustrations that you mentioned is the work that coral and oyster reefs, as well as mangrove forests, do to protect the coastline against sea level rise. So these are all examples, again, of what I mentioned previously, this broad category of soft engineering or nature-based solutions. So if you're standing at the coastline and you look out towards the water, coral and oyster reefs do important work to buffer the coastline against waves. And this naturally causes erosion. But we've done away with a lot of them on islands in the tropical zone. We've built hotels along the beach, right at the beachfront. We've cleared the reefs because, uh, you know, when tourists arrive, they like the soft sand and the warm ocean waters, but they don't want reefs cutting their feet. Of course, you're not supposed to walk on reefs anyways, but tourists often don't know that. In cities, we've removed coral and oyster reefs and wetlands as we've dredged for harbors and we've built up and fortified the coastline for streets, for skyscrapers. It's estimated, and I talk about this in the book at more length, that globally about 85% of oyster reefs have been lost. And these entities do really important work, as I mentioned, to buffer against waves. And sea level rise and storm surge are often the most deadly part of hurricanes. Now, if you turn around at that coastline and you you know turn around 180 and you face inland, coral and especially oyster reefs do really important work to filter the water coming down off the land. So after a rainstorm, 
The water runs over all that gunk that is picked up, the pesticides that we actually don't have to use from agriculture, the dung from livestock, which we don't need to farm in an agribusiness type way, the chemicals and toxins on roads produced by vehicles. I don't want to be misunderstood as saying that oyster reefs are 100% solution to help filter the water. But beyond these solutions, what I wanted to underscore and highlight in these illustrations is the rich and vibrant marine communities that inhabit coral reefs and oyster reefs and mangrove forests. Again, like the ocean, each of these entities are rich marine habitats unto themselves. They are not just doing work for us, right? I don't have an illustration of wetlands in the book, but the same could be said of wetlands. They're such important migratory for migratory birds they're very important um they're really important as this interstitial coastal zone and i think for that reason when the recent decision came down by the u.s supreme court you know the sattler versus the epa um which ruled in favor of these two private property owners you know in in terms of wetlands basically gutting the protections of wetlands which are already so devastated like that decision for me was just really difficult to hear. Sadly, it all comes down to greed. Yeah. It's difficult not to see this as uh, these people aren't protecting us. They're protecting their bank accounts. And that's sickening. Okay. Now, which atoll nations are most at risk from rising waters and what is being done to help their residents? And of course, we can't even delve into this issue without thinking about the fact that there aren't immigration policies in place for these people. Yeah, thanks for for bringing attention to the most at-risk low-lying atoll nations. There's two kinds of islands, high islands, volcanic islands, low-lying atoll nations. In the Pacific, in terms of low-lying atoll nations, the most at risk are the Marshall Islands, Kiribati, and Tuvalu. And then in the Indian Ocean, the Maldives are most at risk. So the Marshall Islands is on average six and a half feet above sea level rise. So when you take the figures I mentioned previously, conservative is three feet by the end of the century. Six to eight feet is a more generous and some say accurate estimate. You can see the reality that they're dealing with. These islands have pursued very different paths to deal with sea level rise. The Maldives have built an entirely new island that is visualized by cartographer Molly Roy, who contributed the maps to sea change. Kuluhumali is the name of the island, and that is going to house people. So this is one approach. You can build new islands. You can raise islands. Um, I talk in the book about infill or expanding islands. Um, Singapore and off the eastern Asian continents is one example of infill. And then Bahrain is also in the Middle East is also expanding via infill. But most of the islands in my book see change and Bahrain and Singapore Maldives are kind of contrasting examples here. Most of the islands in my book, Sea Change, have very small economies, whether you measure that nationally by GDP or individually by average income. So they can't afford these types of hard engineering solutions. And that's kind of a thread that runs through Sea Change, right? The island nations that are disproportionately most severely already experiencing the impacts of sea level rise, they've done the least to contribute to the climate crisis. So island nations, there's variation here, but on average, they've produced less than 1% of global emissions. And then they've been subjected to colonialism, which has plundered their natural resources. So they don't have the financial resources to address the impact of the climate crisis for which they are least responsible. And it's really 
for this reason that when the annual UN climate negotiations take place at the end of the year, over a two-week period, that you often hear island nations demanding that nations in the global north, who are historically most responsible for producing these emissions, the U.S. is historically the largest emitter, that they provide compensation to nations in the global south. The uh, head of state of Barbados, Mia Motley, has been really rethinking how loan structures work, focusing on this particular issue, which is historical financial inequities compounded by the the financial impacts of the climate crisis. Um, so that's one solution. Kiribati's former president, Anote Tong, about whom there's a whole film, if your listeners want to check it out, called Anote's Ark, a documentary that's been made. When he was head of state, he had already taken action by purchasing land on Fiji so that his people can, as he named this project, migrate with dignity. I think the issue of climate refugees, which is a term that's been bandied about, is also going to keep being in that, you know, one to consider. Climate refugees aren't in the UN 1951 Convention on Refugees, which obviously comes out of out of uh, World War II, the Nazi era, and the Holocaust, because the climate crisis wasn't an issue at that time period. And I think the migration is only can can continue afoot within the U.S. Um, the Great Migration by Grist journalist Jake Biddle is a book that I just recently just came out that I just recently finished reading that covers this issue. So I definitely appreciate the question because I think it's one we're going to have to keep considering. Yeah, I mean, it feels like it's all being swept under the carpet and that the crisis we are going to have from refugees having to leave these island areas uh, and coastal areas, it's just going to be traumatic. Christina, thank you for taking the time to be on the Bookshop podcast. I love your book. I think it is extremely important and timely. And I highly recommend it to everyone. Well, oh, thank you so much for all of your lauding words, Mandy, and for your appreciation of engagement with Sea Change. I mean, the point is, you know, really to get this into people's hands so that they understand and care about the issue and are motivated to take action, whatever that means. And the beauty of your book is it incorporates multiple disciplines, uh, the poetry, the artwork, the science, and that excites me. Thank you for writing and presenting such a fabulous book. And I'm so grateful that you're here. Are you kidding? It was such a pleasure. Your questions were amazing. I was so delighted to get them and just so great to be in conversation with you today. Such a great podcast. You've been listening to my conversation with Christina Gerhardt author of Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. This is a book I highly recommend. To find out more about The Bookshop Podcast, go to thebookshoppodcast.com and make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to the show. You can also follow me at Mandy Jackson Beverly on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and on YouTube at The Bookshop Podcast. If you have a favorite indie bookshop that you'd like to suggest we have on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you via the contact form at thebookshoppodcast.com. The Bookshop Podcast is written and produced by me, Mandy Jackson Beverly. Theme music provided by Brian Beverly, executive assistant to Mandy, Adrian Otterhan, and graphic design by Francis Varala. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye.